morning, friends. Good morning. Good to see everybody here on this good Sunday morning. Um, yeah, we made it. We made it through the bulletin. You know, we we made it. <laughs> um, thank you to yeah. Well, yeah, we'll see how we get from here. But uh, thanks to John for leading us uh, in worship. Thanks to Krista. Thanks to Jacob. Thanks to Craig. Thanks to Dieter. Thanks to everybody who makes uh, this thing happen today. Um, it's a privilege to be up here. Um, I miss Pastor David. I wish he was preaching and not me, but uh, <laughs> he is away. And so here I am doing the thing that field ed interns do and getting the opportunity to, to preach a sermon to you today. Um, and uh, it's really a privilege and an honor to get the chance to do that, and I'm glad uh, all of you are here. So I'm excited to dive into the Word of God together. But um, first, can I ask you all a question? Um, and by the way, if we make it through the service like with me without me like complaining about this microphone, this is gonna be this is gonna be a great thing. So pray for me. Where pray for my sermon, but pray for this microphone especially. Like it's gonna be even better. But yeah, okay. So have you have you wished? Have you wished? Have you wished you could take a day off from being yourself? Um, yeah, I, uh, we'll get to the text in a second. But consider this a nice little long uh, preamble. Um, I'm excited for the text, um, but let me tell you the story of a man named Zora Bikangaga, as told, uh, how many of you listen to an NPR show called This American Life? All right, so some of you who have, you might have heard this thing already. Bear with me as I try to retell the story to you. Zora he grew up in the suburbs of Northern California. And I, I'm happy I said that right because I, I listened back to the sermon that I gave two weeks ago. I accused North Carolina of having forest fires when I meant to say Northern California. These are the kinds of things that you hear and you catch yourself when you, when you, uh, when you listen back to the tape. Hopefully, prayerfully, nothing like that happens again here. But uh, North, Northern California, this is where Zora grew up. He grew up in a very uh, racially homogenous area. The town was like 80% white. And so he grew up sounding like everybody else there. Uh, but notice his name. His name is Zora Bikangaga. Um, he had Ugandan parents. And so, you know, one summer he, he transfers into Westmont College. This is a small uh, liberal arts school in uh, a small Christian important liberal arts school in Santa Barbara. And well, his his well-meaning roommate, his like he found out they, his well-meaning soon to be roommate they got all excited. Wow, I have a roommate named Zora Bikangaga. Where does that name come from? And so Zora's friends. Uh, and, and by the way, quick side note, uh, your counsel is only good if you get it from wise people. Um, <laughs> Uh, Zora's friends, uh, they told him, well, hey, here's what you gotta do. Remember, you know, he's, he's, he's like northern, he's northern California, he's suburbs, he sounds like he's from the suburbs. But here's what he said. Uh, they said, act like you're from somewhere in Africa. Um, so, the brother calls Zora uh, Reed. He, he says, hey, my name is Reed. Um, uh, and, and Zora decides that he's gonna answer the phone in this, like, fake, but, Pretty convincing, apparently, Ugandan accent. Um, and he continued that throughout the entire conversation. And the idea was that this would be a small joke and, uh, you know, school would start and uh, he'd play it for a little bit and then he'd stop. But then move-in day came. And the problem is, see, like, he caught to read, but then read to talk to his, uh, to his family and the family came to go help uh, Reed move in. And so here come these nice, very Christian uh, people, all excited. Oh, my goodness. Tell me about your background. And so he kept up the act for a little bit longer. And he kept it up for a day. And then he was introduced to, to two, like, actual people from, like, actually Africa. Like, he was, people who were actually from Kenya. And, and here's where I tell you, this story makes me, like, remarkably uncomfortable. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm already in too deep. Um, 
the 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 actual native born Kenyan students who, you know, they weren't from Uganda, but they were from like Western Africa and they they, they got fooled too. Zora knew enough about Uganda that he was able to play the part, and so he did, through orientation. And I kid you not, for a couple of months, until he got tired of the act, and then he ultimately just outed himself in the school newspaper. So it's a crazy story, makes me really uncomfortable. You can find it on episode 598 of This American Life on NPR. (laughs) Some people uh, can't quite do that. So if I tell you that there's a seven foot one, 330 pound black man walking inside of here, I think, who, who, who is that? Who is it? Okay, thank you. Okay, oh, you know who it is. Thank you, Craig. I appreciate you. Thank you. Um, Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal, former star basketball player. He actually, uh, the, the, our, our good friends at TMZ, uh, the, the, the paparazzi, they have spotted him trying to hide behind trees and Range Rovers. And he's been unsuccessful because he's seven foot one and he's 330 pounds. And you can't do that when you're Shaq. Um, I, I bet you it wouldn't matter how much of a mask that he put on. You'd know exactly who he was the moment that he walks through those hope doors. Because first of all, his head wouldn't even probably touch the top of that little thing up there. And, uh, or even say Yao Ming, the, the, the Chinese former NBA basketball player, and he's the current president of the Chinese Basketball Association. And he stands even taller than Shaq at seven foot six. The man hasn't played professionally in years. Yet he once legitimately remarked, I can't hide. Lamenting, I can't put on dark glasses and walk out. That bothers me a little. I can't go out with my kid too much because of my size. I love spending time with my kid. Isn't that just sad? Not to compare Shaq or Yao Ming to Jesus or anything. um, But I think we can learn something about the character, about who Jesus is, by looking at tall people. So, follow me here. Tall people can't stop being tall. And Jesus can't stop being Jesus. Even in the times when, as we find in Mark 6, Jesus could do, quote, no mighty work, we find that even there we get this little note, like he says he could do no mighty work. But here's what it says. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. Even in the places where Jesus was rejected, even in the places where Jesus wasn't welcomed, Jesus couldn't, and dare I say today, even in the darkest places of our world, still believe, still have to hold on to the hope. Even now, even today, Jesus can't stop being Jesus. So what does that mean? He had he was nailed to a cross. And again, I'm going to get to the text in a second. He was nailed to the cross and he had marks in his hands and his physical characteristics. They 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 changed. It's not that he stopped being a certain height. And like we know from Isaiah 53 that Jesus's physical appearance wouldn't even be of such a character that anybody would even want to really look at him. So it's not that. But here's what I mean when I said Jesus can't stop being Jesus. For as long as he was alive here on this earth, and now that he is seated at the right hand of God, he can't stop being who he is, one with his father. And uh, here's the point in the program where I just would like to pause and uh, remind everybody, uh, I am a black preacher. Feel free to say amen. <laughs> You're going to help me out a little bit here. He's going to help me out when you smile, nod your head, say something back to the preacher here. So yet this, his alignment with the father, Jesus' alignment with the father was of such uh, such a character that even in his darkest moment, the moment when one of his closest followers, Judas, the one who, okay, uh, Hope City, uh, hope, 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 we need all the hope you to, to let's see if, if y'all uh, understand this. Uh, in the words of the prophet Drake, um, 
uh, one of close, one of Jesus's closest followers who he, who, who at the beginning claimed to be writing and said he'd never ever leave from, from, none of y'all know Drake? None of y'all, none of y'all know Drake? <laughs> really? <laughs> anyway, uh, I, 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 I thought I was safe. Pastor David said who let the dogs in yesterday, last week, and so I thought I was safe, but anyway. Um, he betrayed him and handed him over to be arrested at night. And, uh, you know, look. At this point, even in his dark, his alignment with the Father, Jesus' alignment with the Father, even at that moment, seemed like it took work for Jesus. And we're not called to be Jesus, thank God. But we're called, if we want to do what we're called to do in John 15, and abide, remain in Jesus, and abide, remain in his love. Side note, we're called to do that on an individual and a corporate level because far too often we forget that these instructions of Jesus were instructed to a group of people and wasn't only for our individual application. If we want to abide in Jesus, 1 John 2 tells us we are to walk in the same way. We're to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. And Jesus' walk, his character, the way he lived his life, it didn't change even in his final days. Why? Well, there's a pretty simple answer to that, but it's a hard one to live out. Jesus was a man of prayer. Amen. I'm going to have to quote you all. Jesus was a man of prayer. All right. That ended there. Thank you all. Oh, I know you've heard sermons about prayer before. I know. Uh, thank you. <laughs> this is gonna be fun. Oh, I know. Like you want an explanation of like you want an explanation of uh, the Judas kiss. Pastor David can take that when he gets back. I'm leaving that on to him. Um, you want to know about heaven, and we want to know about the Trinity. And how many of you know that it's sometimes the easy stuff that we find the hardest to actually do? Like, like I can listen. I've been playing the piano for a little bit. I can play the piano by ear. You can give me a song. I can probably sit down and play it comfortably in most keys. And I still have to Google. I have to Google how to write a check. (laughs) My mom found out this week that I sometimes don't even even know what to do when I have to give them to somebody. It's been a long week. Listen, Um, how is it that we don't know how to do the hard stuff? Like, man, I can sing all five verses of a hymn that I probably haven't heard in like 10, 15 years, right? Or for the more theologically minded about us, anytime somebody says, well, my favorite verse is Philippians 4.13. Well, you have this thing that runs in your head. Stop taking Philippians 4.13 out of context. It's not about weightlifting. It's not about your grades. It's not about getting that car dealer to give you the thing that you want. It, 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 it's about how, knowing how to be content no matter the circumstance. And see, we say that stuff, but it's the fundamentals, it's the living the essence of the things that we know how to do. That is the thing that we struggle the most with. Or, 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 or maybe, maybe, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't say we, maybe that's just me. Maybe it's me. But uh, I've been around church people for a little bit and... Uh, I've been in professional ministry for a little bit, and I think I can suspect that it probably isn't just me. You learn this in school. You can't do calculus unless you learn to add. And we can't live the best lives we can as Christians unless we persist in prayer. So I almost titled this sermon, Another Sermon on Prayer, because it is. And that would have been a great title, I think. Um, But here's what we find. Because Jesus prayed when he was facing distress, he had the strength he needed to be what he has always been. One, a teacher. Two, a healer. And three, God of grace. And so that's a long preamble to this sermon, the point of which is that Jesus can't stop being Jesus. And my prayer for us is that as we look at this text, we're led to praise him even more for being a constant in all circumstances. And that we'll be strengthened 
in our journey to walk as he walked. So let's look at the text, Luke 22. It's found on page 1122 in your uh, pew Bibles. going to start a little bit earlier than I think I said I was going to start, and I'm going to start at verse 5, going up to verse 51. Here now I'll read him from God's word. And he, being Jesus, said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you might not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray with us. God. I pray this with my eyes closed, but I pray that our spiritual eyes would be open to see you as we, as you really are. I pray that today, God, um, our hearts wouldn't be condemned as we get this challenge to pray more. I pray that we would know what is true of us, that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus but that our hearts would instead be stirred and challenged to abide in you more and to walk in the way Jesus walked. And so as I preach this, God, I pray that the words of my mouth, the things that I think while I'm up here, would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Jesus is who he's always been. Jesus is who he's always been. The same yesterday, today, and forevermore. As he was in the beginning, he is now and ever shall be. And so in what we just read, we find the disciples being who they often were, confused, weak, and seemingly unable to do anything right without Jesus' help. 
Unless you think I'm talking down on the disciples, I know I'm talking about myself. And I'm guessing I'm talking about you. We're confused, weak, and unable to do anything right without Jesus' help. So we find Jesus at the start of this passage, giving this, 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 this seemingly ridiculous set of instructions. One that seems to fly in the face of everything that he had taught them before. Like Luke 9, 3, he told them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And here they were now, being told to not only take the stuff that Jesus said that they didn't need, but now they were to sell their tunics to get swords? Had Jesus changed his mind? (laughs) Well, it would have been something if he did. Uh, but then uh, this sermon title would have had to change. And uh, as you probably can guess, I've been working on this thing for a little while, so I chose the title for a reason. So, yeah. Um, similarly to how Pastor David taught us last week that Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to the Canaanite women, despite meaning the complete opposite. And he told us, Pastor David did, that all are invited to our Father's table. It was an amazing sermon if you haven't heard it. Get in the bag, go to the church's website. Um, and here, it seems that Jesus is doing the same thing that we just learned about last week. Don't blame me. Blame Jesus. And blame the people who went to school or study this stuff and write books about it, because they say so too. Jesus isn't actually telling the disciples that they need swords. They've been with him for three years. They know what he's about. Or at least they should, but don't. The journey was like, yes, the journey was about to get harder. And the disciples wouldn't be spared from want in the same sort of a way that they were in the past. No, but 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 get get a sword. Of course, <laughs> here are the disciples at your service, master. Here are two swords. Can't you imagine Jesus just like, <laughs> just like shaking his head and being like, it is enough. Notice he didn't say, that's enough. It's not that they needed two swords or one. They needed to pray. But either Jesus' sarcasm tone wasn't working that day, he was about to go to a cross after all, um, or, or, or much more likely, the disciples should have, but as was their custom, didn't. Pick up on the symbolic meaning and the ironic meaning of Jesus' words. They were, of course, to be clothed with the spiritual armor of God, equipped with what Paul calls in Ephesians the sword of the spirit, the word of God. But not the swords of this world. Bookmark those swords because they come very important in a little bit. But our custom, their custom, our custom, is often to misunderstand Jesus. Jesus' custom, and I love that this is so, was to go to his place of prayer. Jesus' custom was to go to his place of prayer. Verse 39, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. John's gospel let us know that this was a spot that Jesus and his disciples often met. This garden called Gethsemane, at the foot of the Mount of Olives, was a place that the disciples knew. And for what it's worth, Judas also knew, because they had been there so regularly, where to go to find Jesus. So here's a question for us. When the enemy is looking for us, where will we be sure to be found? 
Instagram for us younger people, in front of the TV for maybe some of you older people, <laughs> on Netflix, at work, in the library, Yankee Stadium. <laughs> Jesus was found where he was since he was a child. As we learned 20 chapters earlier in the book of Luke, Jesus was where he had always been about his father's business. And it's really interesting what happened when Jesus began to start praying. He did ask for the cup of suffering to be removed from him. And here we get a real sense of Jesus's humanity. He knew his purpose, but his purpose involved death and great pain. And what great pain it must have been for Jesus to know that he was about to, one, die a painful death that he didn't deserve, and in so doing, culminate a great spiritual battle between God and Satan, one that had been foreshadowed in Luke 4. But I was thinking about Psalm 55. Go back and read Psalm 55. It's a psalm of betrayal. Um, And if you've ever felt like you've been betrayed, that Psalm 55 is for you. And when you read it, the language in there, if you put this in the mouth of Jesus, you understand that this is pain, deep pain that Jesus felt. And he did all of this so that we might live. And Jesus knew what he was here for. The theologian Daryl Bach puts it this way. Jesus did not have a death wish. His choice to face the cross was an act of supreme service and sacrifice. And here I'd like to pause to point out a few things. In prayer, Jesus asked for what he wanted, something. It's okay, and it seems, according to the example of Jesus, to ask God for the honest things that we wish. And note, when we don't get what we ask for when we pray, that is not evidence that our Father does not love us. The Father loved Jesus. Jesus asked for the cup to be taken away from him. The answer was no. Jesus prayed. And Jesus' prayers, as we can see, were not a way for him to manipulate his father. It wasn't, oh, if I just pray this way and for this long, God's going to do what I want him to do. But notice how he closed. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the purpose of Jesus' prayer is this. And may ours also be the same, to align himself with the will of his father. That's why we pray, not to get what we want from God, though we are to ask for it, but to align ourselves in our heart with our father's heart, his heart for us, his heart for those around us, and his heart for the world. But notice that even before, even before Jesus had started to pray, he was doing what he had been doing since the beginning, teaching his disciples. And so this is the first point. Even in the darkest, most agonizing period of Jesus' life, when his sweat would reach a point, verse 44, where it was as if drops of blood were falling to the ground, Jesus couldn't stop being a teacher. Before he even started praying, he was teaching the disciples, verse 40, pray that you might not enter into temptation. Jesus didn't force his disciples to pray. He didn't do what I might want to do and helicopter over them until they got started. This is not, like, Jesus would have been a perfectly good airplane. It occurred to me, Jesus would have been a perfectly good airplane uh, passenger today. It's like, it's not Jesus putting on the metaphorical oxygen mask on the people next to him before he put it on himself. You know how they tell you, make sure to put on the oxygen mask. And you're like, well, no, I want to put it on my kid. Jesus Jesus put it on himself. He went to pray himself. 
And he prayed for them as he'd been doing all along. Because he'd been doing that since the beginning. And he hadn't changed. But he reminded them of what he already taught them in Luke 11. Our Father, which art in heaven, the prayer that we prayed earlier, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Lead us not into temptation. Pray, Jesus said, to not be led into temptation. And here is back again. Prayer will protect them, he said, from unfaithfulness and will encourage them to faithfulness and to perseverance. And the way that this word is written in the original language seems to indicate that this one wasn't just an instruction for that moment to, you know, say the night-night prayers and say the prayers that you pray before food and all would be well. But they were too, and we are too. Keep praying. Yes, individually, but two, we're to pray together. This is a hard posture. And man, I want to have it. We need it. We need it. Jesus' disciples didn't have to and don't have to, church, labor in prayer alone. The benefit of being in community with other disciples, both then and now, is that we can do it with each other. We can carry each other's burdens to our God, knowing that he cares for us. Jesus wasn't teaching his disciples here to be individual heroes. Like, it wouldn't have been a success if Bartholomew was the only one who stayed awake. Like, if all the other ones fell asleep, that wouldn't have been, well, good job, Bartholomew, you did it right, good job for you. Nah, the instruction was for all of them to pray together that none of them would enter into temptation. Yet, yeah, um, by the time Jesus had got up from his prayer, Verse 45, the disciples were sleeping for sorrow. And this is the great contrast between Jesus and the disciples. Verse 41, Jesus knelt down in a posture of humility that wasn't actually the normal Jewish customary prayer posture. Normally they stood up to pray. But Jesus knelt down to pray in a posture of humility. Verse 44, being in agony, he prayed even more earnestly. Yet the disciples, exhausted from their grief, got another plea from Jesus in verse 46 to pray. And I wonder who we relate to more here. Jesus or the disciples? If I can be fully honest with you, um, I relate to the disciples here more than I relate to Jesus. These past couple of weeks in preparing this sermon for me have been two of probably the most difficult spiritual weeks in preparing a sermon that I've had, despite the fact that I'm young, some of you have noticed that, yeah, I have been doing this for a little while, and this, like, I, I, like, this has been a difficult sermon to prepare. Maybe God knew I need to go through this in order to preach this sermon to you with some level of compassion, but, man, after I preached two Sundays ago, right, um, went to Pastor Jonathan's house for, um, for a launch team meeting for King's Cross Church, and Drove home, and it really wasn't so much that I was physically exhausted. I had energy. I'd been sleeping. I'm trying to take care of myself, y'all. Y'all should be proud of me. But I was spiritually exhausted. And knowing that I was going to have to preach a sermon today in two weeks about, like, prayer was just immensely frustrating. Because I found myself sitting down, staring at a wall, able to form many thoughts, but unable to actually pray them. Sitting in my bed knowing that I should pray, but not being able to. And this is my reality for like three, four days. I don't know why that happened. It's like really actually pretty confusing to me. It never had happened to me before. 
Maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't sleep enough like I thought. Maybe I'd been running on adrenaline and I crashed. I don't know. I thought I was doing well. Maybe I didn't eat well enough. I, I, I don't know. But isn't it funny how like minor things can throw our routine off? Like, man, I didn't even write this, but like, look, just look at that. Just, just look at what like the example from service today. Uh, John just John moved a page to page six, and I noticed everybody like, oh, my, what, 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 what is going on? Like, turn the page. The bulletin's okay. You're gonna live. It's gonna be fine. Minor things throw our routine off. It begins to rain, and we get all grumpy. And, like, suddenly the sun comes out the next day and everybody's like, pleasant good morning to you. So good to see you today. Like, what just happened the day before? It's been snowing all month, you're all smiling, nobody, and then somebody, some, sometimes the sun comes up and you just want to go smile at people. Like, weather changes our emotions. The food that we eat changes our emotions. How our body is feeling changes our emotions. How much we slept the night before changes our emotions. But the example of Jesus shows us that we shouldn't change our heart posture towards God just because of the fluctuations of our human bodies. In prayer, we get to align our hearts with our God who is constant, which we need, because we just are not. How do we live a constant life in the face of our unconstant heart? We pray. We pray. We pray. And of course, as Jesus found in verse 43, he was strengthened only after he began to pray. I'd like to just stay on this topic of our changeability, our mutability, if I can, because I was reminded of this game show that uh, came on during uh, the game show craze of the early 2000s. Like, you remember, like, some of you remember when Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and all kinds of stuff like that was going on ABC and it was a show called The Chamber. Y'all remember, the, any of you remember The Chamber? Okay, that's okay, because it only had six episodes, and so that's, that's fine. Um, I don't know if I even ever watched it. I was like nine years old. Um, I don't know why I remembered it, that, that it existed. But thanks to the power of uh, that wonderful invention, now owned by Google, called YouTube, uh, I remember this. Basically, it was on Fox. And people would go inside of this chamber, and they had the option for, like, seven minutes to go to either a hot chamber or a cold chamber. And the hot chamber would start at 110 degrees Fahrenheit, and for each minute, you would rise, the temperature would rise by 10 degrees, taking you up to 170. Or the uh, cold chamber would start (laughs) at 30 degrees Fahrenheit, and it would go down uh, every minute. I don't know why this was allowed on television, y'all. I, honestly, it was, it was going down um, to the point at which it would reach negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit. And so depending on which chamber that they picked, contestants were either were, were supposed to, while strapped in this little seat thing, they were supposed to answer questions correctly while either real flames and earthquakes or, in the cold one, water jets and ice surrounded them. And supposedly the idea was to prove that people can do crazy things while under pressure. Um, yeah, And, of course, promised the contestants <laughs> the benefit of a grand, $100,000. You can get me to do that for probably $2 billion, man. Like, except for the fact that one of the contestants survived all seven minutes. Um, he won, I love this, he won $20,000. And then he ended up in the hospital and he sued Fox because of course he did. So, um, and, and so, yeah, they only aired uh, three of those shows on TV. That's why you probably don't know it. But there is something there. Ridiculous as that show was, isn't that sort of, kind of, how the Christian life works. Like, they still had to answer questions. No matter how crazy the conditions of the chamber got. (laughs) And look it up, man. They got crazy. And it doesn't really matter whether we're in a hot chamber or a cold chamber or Disney World in October. 
our instructions to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, our soul, our strength and mind and love our neighbors as ourselves, they don't suddenly change. I don't get to not be a Christian during paper season at school. You don't get to not be a Christian during crazy times at work. And if that makes you feel as it did me while preparing this, like the demands of the Christian life seem really hard. Well, yes, that seems to be the point. We're frail. We're fallen. We're shiftable. We're changing. We're limited human beings. And it's only through a constant hard posture of prayer. Ultimate dependence on our God. Our full attention fixed on our perfect, immutable, boundless God. That any of this is possible. So thankfully, Jesus' character is not as fickle as mine is. And thankfully, Jesus' decisions aren't as fickle as our decisions are either. So Jesus tells the disciples to pray multiple times. But as he's giving those instructions, in comes the crowd and Judas and swords and clubs and the pressure. He's in a hot chamber. And so do the disciples. Remembering the instructions that they had misinterpreted and expanding things onto them that Jesus hadn't even said. Asked, Lord, time now? Shall we strike with the sword? And that's sometimes like, you know, without even waiting for a reply, because that's sometimes how we pray. <laughs> God, should I? Let's go! <laughs> Um, and because God doesn't respond quickly enough for a liking sometimes. So they ask, should we strike? And then BAM! <laughs> Strikes the servant, the slave of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. I wanted to make a uh, Evander Holyfield joke here. I couldn't figure out how to put it in, but you can figure that out. Um, and let's just be clear. Peter, I believe, had good intentions. He was defending his master. <laughs> but this is what happens. When we try to do work for God without taking time to align our hearts with God. The things that surround us become bloody. And there will be damage. And people will suffer. Our decision to pray or not to pray has implications. Not just for us, but for the people around us. One sword caused great damage. Down went an ear. But here we learn a second thing about Jesus. Even under great pressure, Jesus couldn't stop being a healer. Jesus couldn't stop point two, being a healer. He didn't just do what some of us do and shout at Peter, stop it! You're wrong! He didn't just shout, no more of this. But he did something about it. Jesus touched the servant's ear and he healed him. You know, something that's really interesting about this miracle is that it really seems like it was kind of under the radar. So much so that the other Gospels don't even record the healing happening. I don't, so, like, I don't know how Luke found out about this. I'm so happy that he did because there's so much in this miracle. But we don't ever get, like, a record of the high priest servant ever asking to be healed. We don't ever get a speech from Jesus about the healing. But we just get a quick touch. And a quick heal. And I love what it says about Jesus. First, I love that it's not the high priest who he healed. Because then it could have been said that Jesus was trying to earn favor with those in great power. No, Jesus healed somebody who didn't even have the power to do anything for him. 
The second, what a good God, this miracle. And man, I want to say this to anybody who's been hurt by people in church over the years, because shocker, people don't walk into church and life as prayed up as they should be. And I don't. And here's good news. Jesus heals the wounds that his disciples inflict on others. Not without consequences to the disciples, of course. Like, I'm still preaching 2,000 years later a sermon that's saying, don't be like Peter. Peter's reputation wasn't exactly intact after this. And it might have been as a grace to him that the other Gospels didn't tell us what John 18 does and tells us that it's Peter who cut off the high priest servant. And we learned the high priest servant's name in John 18 was Malchus. And his ear, like, we know that with the full scope of history available to us, we're like, oh, in Acts, Peter preached a message that led 3,000 people to get baptized in one day. Oh, Peter was the first disciple to fully associate himself with the Gentile people. And upon this rock, the church that we still stand in today was built. And all of that is true. All of that was true. But in that moment, Peter wasn't a man of a great future. Peter was a man of a very troubled present. And so at first, when looking at this passage, my attention was drawn to what seems like a millisecond difference between the disciples' questions, should we strike back, and Peter's decision to strike with a sword. <clears throat> but there, there's, another, there's another millisecond which might be even more interesting. What about that millisecond between the sword to the ear and Jesus' healing of the ear? <clears throat> like when Peter caught off Malchus' ear, and, and, and when Jesus said no more of this, <clears throat> there must have been a quick realization from Peter that, oh, this is not the way of Jesus. Jesus does not do things the way my natural mind does it. And then almost immediately, can't you imagine Peter pivoting straight to despair? We don't know what he thought. But I wonder if he realized then that he might have just even made it a little bit harder for Jesus. He just cut off the ear of one of the servants of the primary decision makers in Jesus' case. Like, did Peter realize right there and that I might have just screwed this whole thing up? And that's why this miracle reveals one last thing about Jesus. Jesus is, has been from the beginning, was then, is now God of grace. This could have been really bad. There could have been even more chaos and even more arrests. And Peter would not have been as innocent as Jesus was on trial, despite Jesus' guilty verdict. Pilate would have been able to find fault in that man. But the grace that Jesus showed to Peter was that he reminded him that this mistake was not irreparable. Oh, it was not without consequences. But I'm thankful for a God who can fix the things in our lives that we don't deserve to get repaired. It was a miracle of great grace to Malchus also. Like, what did Malchus do to receive healing? Why? As far as we know, he didn't do anything. He was just there. He got his ear cut off. Congratulations to him. Also, his story is being told in history because he got his ear cut off. <laughs> but this miracle was of great significance in ways that we might not perhaps even realize. As Natan Lawrence points out, Peter's act would have actually caused great damage to Malchus's career. Leviticus 21.18 says that no one who had a physical blemish, and I would say that your ear being cut off would be a physical blemish, uh, would be able to serve in the temple. And it's likely that that was Malchus's job, serving in the temple. Not only that, it wouldn't have been possible for Malchus to have been consecrated as priest because part of the consecration ritual involved, according to Exodus 29:20, 20, the anointing of the right ear with blood. And I don't know 
if Peter actually intended to cut off Malchus's ear, or if some theologians suggest he was aiming for the head and missed. But I do know that whatever Peter did should have caused great damage, except that Jesus yielded, because nothing, not even the impulsiveness and the anger of his disciple was going to get in the way of Jesus' purpose in the world. And so we ought to take time here to recognize that we can't block and no work of Christians now, no work of Christians in the past can ever block Jesus' purpose in the world to bring glory to his father. Sorry, Peter wasn't and you're not. And thank God that I'm not that strong. Jesus is always better than the best of our best mistakes. And so here's the funny thing. Malchus was the high priest's servant. The high priest's servant. That's what Malchus is referred to in every gospel that's not John. Well, actually, he was referred there too. And that's one more object lesson for us. Because Jesus has a funny way of doing and giving us object lessons when he does his miracles. Michael today just read from Hebrews about how Jesus is our great high priest. One who in every respect had been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And yet we get to call ourselves servants, slaves, as Paul did at the beginning of some of his letters, of Christ. So really, who is the high priest servant? We are. And Jesus is willing and Jesus is able to answer that prayer that we just sung today. He can heal us. And the great news about Jesus is that he, our great high priest, the one from whom we can receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need, is Romans 8.34, seated at the right hand of God and still to this day hasn't stopped praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for me. And he is still teaching us. He hasn't stopped being Jesus. He's still healing us. He hasn't stopped being Jesus. He's still gracious towards us. He hasn't stopped being Jesus. And still, not death, not life, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come, not powers, not height, not death, not our impulsiveness, not our anxiety, not our pain, not our brokenness, not our depression, nothing, nothing, church is able to separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus can't stop being Jesus. He was for us back then, and he's for us today. We ought to be people who praise our God, the one, the son of God, who never, ever, 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 ever changes. This is our God, the same yesterday, today, forevermore. Hasn't changed. And he isn't about to change either. In the good times, Jesus taught to love your enemies. He taught to do good to those who hate you. He taught to bless those who curse you. He taught to pray for those who abuse you. And in the dark times, Jesus did exactly that. What he preached in the light, he did in the dark. Even to the point of his crucifixion, when nailed to a cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That idea that we can walk as Jesus walked, and that we are too, as Christians. I hope it's, 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 it's church, it's, it's, it's hard. Being a Christian isn't easy. 
but it's absolutely possible through prayer. Eventually, Jesus' disciples, they got it, even though they still didn't fully understand. In Acts 1, we find them back at the Mount of Olives, because <laughs> they still didn't fully get it, asking Jesus, okay, now's the time? Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Maybe we couldn't strike with a sword, but like, can you do something? You know, you just rose from the grave. Instead, Jesus promises power when the Holy Spirit comes. Power that would enable the disciples to be Jesus' witnesses in their local places and to the end of the earth. And that power came only after, Acts 1.14, they, with one accord, together with the women and, the, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, were devoting themselves to prayer. And that same Peter, that same one who led destruction, became a leader of calm and organization for his community of people. And look at what God did through him. Imagine what God can do through us if we align ourselves with his heart. Will we be people of prayer? One last thing as, uh, as we close. And I've had the uh, privilege uh, of having two flat tires this summer. Um, yeah, that's great. That's been my summer. Um, but I've learned something about prayer from uh, the flat tire experiences. Did you know that a car can still seem as if it can drive while on a damaged tire? Like the first time I got a flat tire, I ran over a curb. Second time, I don't know what happened. I don't blame, uh, it's, not, it's not my fault. Um, I, I, I thought that I should stop, right? Uh, I might as well check and see if something's up. Well, it was funny. I was like, well, first of all, like, I have to take my sister to work. And I'm like, well, we're late. I'm going to go drive. Uh, and my car was, for what it's worth, still going. And by the time I hit the highway, it reached 70 miles an hour. I thought I was fine. And I was like, I'm late, man. I better move. But eventually, I had to stop. It's not as if my car wasn't a good car. car was just fine. I needed my tires to be working. It was six miles later, and then I started hearing a sound. And if I kept going... Would have done great damage to myself, great damage to my sister, great damage to my car, and probably to somebody else too. Sometimes we think we can go without prayer because things look fine and we're busy and we got to go. Eventually, we're going to be forced to stop or else there will be great damage. We were made. This is built into our DNA from creation. We were made to depend on God. Let's not wait for our damaged tires to go flat before we do something about it. Let's align our broken, prone-to-wander hearts with the constant heart of Jesus, the one who never changes. Jesus can't stop being Jesus. And at least for me, I want to be like him. And so let's take some time right now to do what we've been talking about all day here. Let's pray. God, thank you that your love is stronger than our sin. Thank you that your kindness leads us to repentance. directly to you, directly to the heart of you, God. And I pray that the theme of the sermons from these past two weeks here at Hope will be things that you sprout inside of our hearts, that we would recognize our need for you, God. Teach us, God, to depend on you. As the song says, teach our song to rise to you when temptation comes our way. And when we cannot stand, we'll fall on you. 
Jesus, you are our hope. And Jesus, you are our stay. Let that need that we have of you, God, drive us to our knees. Thank you for what you did for Jesus then and for what you're still able to do for us now. As Jesus prayed, you strengthened him, God. And I pray that as we pray, we will find the same strength that we need. Thank you for your love, O Lord. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.